Well, this is Pastor Daniel Williams with eeleaders.com. And next week, March 4th, we are going to be launching Season 2 of Leadership Lessons. And we are one week away. That's right. Season 2 is coming in one week, March 4th, a whole new season of Leadership Lessons Podcast. And man, I had such a great time recording these interviews, doing guest lessons, and just being able to learn from others. I know that you're going to be encouraged by them. And I know you're going to be equipped by these episodes. And so I'm really excited to be able to drop next week three new episodes of season two of Leadership Lessons. But you don't even have to wait a week. This is going to be fresh content today. It is from the Refresh Conference. It was a local conference that we hosted back in November to encourage and equip local leaders here in our area. And it was an incredible time. We had Pastor David Guzik from EnduringWord.com. We had my friend Jason Sanchez who is an orphanage director down in Mexico. And it was just such an incredible time. And so here is a great word from Pastor David Guzik at session four. And then next week, we'll get right into season two of Leadership Lessons. God bless you guys. I'm praying for you. Can't wait until next week. All right, everybody. Last teaching session of our time together. Let's open up to Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah chapter 20. Some people say that Jeremiah never had any converts or anything. I, I forget the guy's name, but I count one guy that probably was a convert of his. But still, over a 30-year ministry, one convert, it's not super encouraging. And uh, I think we see something really powerful in Jeremiah chapter 20. That um, Well, let me kind of set the stage. First, let me pray. Father, thank you. We do want to be uh, a vessel, Lord. We want to be your messengers to this generation. Lord, we're not really responsible for generations in the past. And uh, we have some responsibility for generations in the future. But, Lord, our, our focus is right here where you've placed us now. So give us, Lord, wisdom by your word to embrace and to seize this challenge that you give to us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God told Jeremiah to go to the potter's house. Remember that? Go check out the potter's house and learn the lesson that God can shape the clay into whatever form he pleases. Then God told Jeremiah to go to the potsherd gate. You know what a potsherd is? It's a weird word. It just means like a broken piece of pottery. Go to the potsherd gate near the Hinnom value, value, Valley and take a clay bottle and use it as an object lesson to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. And this was the object lesson with the clay bottle. That once the clay hardens, it can be easily broken. And you can just, when you read Jeremiah chapter 19, you can just see Jeremiah preaching the sermon. And it's kind of hard to escape the idea that he probably broke the bottle right in front of him. You know, he took this clay bottle, you know, and he said how it can be broken and he just cast it to the ground. I mean, the text doesn't exactly say that he did it, but you, you could see it happening in your mind's eye. 
Now, there's something fascinating about that sermon that he gave at the potsherd gate with the clay bottle is that apparently there weren't very many people there to hear it. You ever have that frustration? Man, you got the best message ever. I mean, this, the Lord is all over this message. And it's like, man. So what God had Jeremiah do was go up to the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount was where everybody was. It was like one of the most active places in all the city of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah, go up to the Temple Mount and preach the message again. And so he does. He goes up there. He begins preaching this message, indicting the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. No doubt he got himself another clay bottle. No doubt he threw it down on the ground. He's preaching this message. And there was a guy named Pashur, who was something like the sergeant of arms, something like the head of security for the Temple Mount. He didn't like what Jeremiah was doing. So this priest named Pashur, who was responsible for security on the Temple Mount, he stopped Jeremiah. That's where we come to verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 20. Ready? Now Pashur, the son of Immer, the priest who was also the chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Okay, so isn't this something? Pashur. Now, sometimes the Bible describes action done by individual when really it was just something that the individual ordered. So I don't know exactly if Pashur came up to Jeremiah and struck him, which you know what it means. doesn't mean he like slapped him on the back. I mean, he belted him across the face. Boom! And who, maybe Pasher himself did it. I wouldn't be surprised. Or maybe he had one of his guys do it. We don't really know. But I imagine Pasher coming up to Jeremiah. Boom! Now, that's bad enough. I've had sermons interrupted. I've never had a sermon interrupted that way. <laughs> Praise the Lord, and hopefully it never will, right? I'm kind of watching the guys around me. <laughs> A little worried here about jacking him around. I'm going to keep my... Yeah, that's right. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll put the table between you and me for right now. So, I mean, can you imagine what's going through Jeremiah's mind? Just, ah, oh, he's belted by Pashur. If that wasn't bad enough, it says there that he put him in the stocks. Did you see that verse 2? Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks. Not only was he beaten, he was also made to endure a painful public disgrace. You see, you got to remember, in Jeremiah's day, he was not the only prophet recognized in Jerusalem. People understood that Jeremiah was a prophet. But there were other prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord in Jeremiah's day. Do you know what Jeremiah's message was? Jeremiah's message to Jerusalem and Judea was basically this. The Babylonians are coming. They are bringing the judgment of God with them. We are not going to defeat this because it's the judgment of God appointed for us. The thing for us to do is to surrender to the Babylonians and get through this um, a season of judgment with as little loss as we can 
and look for God's glorious restoration on the other side. That was Jeremiah's message. Now, the false prophets in Jeremiah's day had a different message. The false prophets said this, God's going to deliver us. I know the Babylonians are coming, but God's delivered us for, did not God deliver us in the day of Gideon? Did not God deliver us in the days of David? Did not, and they, they pointed to all these miraculous ways that God delivered them. To, He's going to deliver us again. But it was all false because Jeremiah was the true prophet. Now, the false prophets were embraced by the guys like Pashur, the priests, the city officials, because their message was patriotic. It seemed in the eyes of the public officials and such that Jeremiah preached a subversive, maybe even a treasonous message, because Jeremiah's basic message was surrender. When the Babylonians come, do not put up a fight. Surrender. This is God's judgment. Let's get through it as, as easily as we can. And God has something glorious for us on the other side. So therefore, it wasn't enough for Pashur to just silence Jeremiah. The punch to the face might have just silenced Jeremiah. He had to humiliate him. He had to discredit his message. And so on the Temple Mount, he puts him in the stocks. Now, when it says that he struck him, there's many commentators who believe that this was technical language that tells us that Jeremiah received the 39 stripes that would be appointed to men. You know, Paul talks about how he received that. 40 save one is how Paul phrases it in the King James. And then they put him in the stocks. That has the root word, the Hebrew word stocks, which, by the way, I need to give this disclaimer. I mean, I am an unusual Bible commentary guy. I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I mean, I don't say that as like some, you know, badge of honor. I think it's really weird that God has used me to do the Bible commentary thing, and I don't know Greek or Hebrew. But I will say this. I know how to read the guys who do know Greek and Hebrew. And, and apparently, there's something in the Hebrew word here for stocks. The word comes from the Hebrew word to twist or to distort. So it wasn't just like the Puritan thing where they put you in the stocks like this. But there was probably something painfully twisted and distorted about the body position of Jeremiah. This was some kind of torture. I mean, maybe it was light on the torture scale, but it was some kind of torture. Publicly humiliating. Look at where it happened. It says it happened at the high gate of Benjamin. As public as possible, Jeremiah beaten, discredited, tortured. Again, I don't want to exaggerate it, but at least lightly tortured, humiliated in every way. Now look at verse 3. And it happened the next day that Pashur brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Okay, stop right there. Brought him out of the stocks. Wasn't that nice? I mean, he only left him in there for a day. Could have been much worse. Praise the Lord, he let him out. Jeremiah, aren't you grateful that the Lord let you out? Jeremiah, aren't you going to have a little better attitude about, you know, 
your ministry and such? Look at what he says, continuing on in verse 3. Then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Magor Misabib. Which like we go, ooh, that's cold. <laughs> you know, we, we really go, what? So? I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, check it out. The meaning of the name Pashur, again, it's a little obscure. The best research I found says that the name Pashur is sometimes given as freedom. Sometimes it's given as ease or peacefulness. Either way, it's something positive. Freedom, ease, peacefulness. That's the name Pashur. The name Magor Misabeb, you know what it means? Terror on every side. That's what Jeremiah says to the man who let him out of the stocks. Of course, it was the same man who put him in the stocks. But, you know, you can have some of that Stockholm syndrome going on there. And anybody who relieves your discomfort by a little bit, you kind of bonded to them. Not Jeremiah. As soon as he gets out, he gets out, he rubs his wrists, he looks at Pastor, hey, you know what? They're not going to call you freedom anymore. They're going to call you terror on every side. Now, this was when, at least in the minds of the people, if not in fact, the Babylonian army was on the way. Again, it, maybe they hadn't started marching yet, but everybody knew they were out there, and everybody knew what the Babylonian army would do when they got to Jerusalem. They would surround the city on every side. It would be terror on every side. And that's what he says his name is. This is going to apply it now, verse 4. For thus says the Lord. All right, now just fasten your seatbelts. God bless you, Jeremiah. God bless you for not holding back the word of the Lord. God bless you for preaching what we would call the whole counsel of God and not giving favor just, just because it's difficult to do. He says, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. Okay, again, he's looking at Pashur, the guy that just let him out of the stocks, looking him square in the eye. Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of the city, all its produce, and all its precious things, all the treasures of the king of Judah. I will give into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends, to whom you have prophesied lies. Well, good morning, Jeremiah. I mean, he's spewing forth pure lava of truth. Pastor, thank you very much for letting me out of the stocks, but I got a message for you. The message is simply this. You are going to be a terror to yourself and to all your friends. When they see how wrong you were, because you have been one of the crew who have been prophesying that God's going to deliver us from the Babylonians, he's not. He's not. We will be conquered. The Babylonians will conquer us. And you, 
You're going to go to Babylon, you and your family, and you are going to die there. Jeremiah doesn't back off from the message one bit, despite the discouragement, despite the opposition, despite the discomfort, despite everything. I mean, honestly, honestly, and I'm not trying to, like, just sound spiritual here. I, I'm, I wouldn't do this. I, I can't think of myself doing this. I would think I'd say, all right, in my heart, I haven't backed down from this message one bit. And you just wait. In a couple days, I'm going to come back and preach as, as strong as ever. But for Pete's sake, give it a couple days. I just got out of the stocks. <laughs> let, the, let the wounds on my back heal a little bit first. No, I'm, but I'm not giving up on the message. No, not one bit. I mean, Jeremiah is just cut from a different kind of cloth. He just comes forth, and he's just right there, right to the man who has authority over him. He just does it. He pours it out. And I don't know. I, I often say that when I read the Bible, it's like a movie in my head. I hope it is for you. And I mean this in a reverent way. I don't think we should be having weird imaginations about the Bible, but, but this really happened. I think it's okay for us to imagine it. And based on what Jeremiah says next, starting at verse 7, don't look there. Come on, eyes on me. Don't, no, stop it, stop it. Based on what he says, in, starting at verse 7, I think that when he said this to Pashur, I, if I was making a movie of this, I would put tears streaming down his face. It's like, Lord, I don't want to say this. I wish you didn't give me this message. Why couldn't you have given me a better message? I want to say, praise the Lord, don't we have a better message to share yeah. under the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah. I mean, I can't believe what a chicken I am about sharing an almost infinitely better message. When Jeremiah had like the worst message in the world to deliver, and he delivered it fearlessly. Praise the Lord, we have a better message to deliver. And I'm not saying that we should never include kind of the dark side of our message. And the dark side is, for those who are insistent in their rejection of Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers, there's only one destiny for them. Okay, and that's the dark. But, I mean, we've got good news to deliver. But I imagine Jeremiah delivering this news, and there's tears streaming down his face. It's like, God, I just, I, I wish, couldn't you give me a better message? Why do you give me this thing that is just, it's just so bold and, and confronts so much? And, but it, I know it's your message. I, I have to deliver this. Okay, now, now look at verse 7. Now Jeremiah is going to talk to God about his calling. Ready? Oh, Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted, violence and plunder, because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. God, why did you call me to do what I'm doing? Don't you see the toll this is taking on my life? Don't you see? Now, look. Look at that in verse 7. You have induced me. I, I want to say this reverently because I, I suppose this could be taken in a strange way. 
But this is a very interesting word. You have induced me. Who has an ESV in front of them? What's it say there? You have deceived me. All right. I don't even know if that's such a great translation because let me tell you something. That verb is used twice in the Old Testament of sexual seduction. Exodus chapter 22 and Judges chapter 16. Now, it certainly doesn't have that sense here, but the sense is plain. And deceived isn't a terrible translation, but it's, it's basically this. God, you tricked me. You tricked me into the ministry. Now, you ever feel like that? You tricked me, Lord. If you would have told me what it would have been like at the beginning, I don't know if I would have gone into this. Because when I got into it, I thought it was going to work out something different than it is right now. And uh, if, you would, if I would have known, maybe I wouldn't have done it. You tricked me, God, into this. Now, I want to say at least one thing very favorable about Jeremiah here. Is Jeremiah spoke this way to God and not to others. This is not his sermon on the Temple Mount there. This is him talking to God privately. And you know what? I think it is great to do what David talked about in the Psalms to pour out your soul before the Lord. And if this is how your hurting heart feels, pour it out before the Lord. He already knows it. It's only good for you to tell God what's already on your heart. Lord, you tricked me. You seduced me, might be a better thing. You seduced me into doing this. Now, I think that's exactly what Jeremiah felt. But not only Jeremiah. We were talking about Moses, weren't we? When Moses was on Mount Sinai and God called to him from the burning bush, what did God tell him? Did God say anything to him about being in the wilderness for 40 years, having to deal with an unbelievably stubborn and rebellious people, and at the end of it all, still not making it into the promised land? seems to me God left all that out at the burning bush. Uh, you think about um, David, Elijah, Hosea. Do, do, do you think Elijah had it all spelled out to him? What he was going to have to suffer and go through when God called him? How about Hosea? Hey, I'm calling you in ministry. Here's your ministry. Your wife is going to go out on you in a way that's almost unimaginable. And you're going to take her back. And she's going to play you for a fool. That's your ministry. Again and again, you're just saying, Lord, what's going on with this? Now, God doesn't trick us. I know it might feel like that at times. He doesn't deceive us, but I will tell you this. He doesn't tell us more than we need to know at our present moment of maturity. God didn't lie to Moses. He didn't lie to Elijah. He didn't lie to David. He didn't lie to Hosea. And he didn't lie to Jeremiah. But he also did not tell them more 
than they needed to know at their present moment of maturity. And if you thought ministry would go a particular way for you, and in some ways you look at it at least at this point, look, you always know that things may change. You've you, you, you got a long way to go in serving the Lord. But you just think about it go, Lord, what's going on with this? I mean, this, listen, God is, but, but God hasn't revealed to you things that you don't need to know at your present level of maturity. That's his love. That's his grace. But I won't deny Jeremiah paid a price for it. Look at it, verse 7. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. You know, he's thinking about his recent experience on the Temple Mount there in the, uh, in the, um, the stocks. And you can imagine everybody walking by, mocking him. Oh, there's the traitor prophet. There's the one who says that the Babylonians are going to beat us. Listen, our prophets say God's going to deliver us. Ha, ha, ha. And then he says in verse 8, the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Do you know what a reproach is? We don't use that word in English. Basically, what it means is disgrace. Lord, I feel like I'm disgraced. Your word is disgraced. We're just treated as a derision daily. Now, all that's kind of introduction. Look at verse 9. Then I said... I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. All right, just stop right there. First two lines. I quit. That's it. I quit. It's too much, Lord. Beyond what you would expect of any man or any woman, I quit. That's it. I'm done. But look at the response. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Report, they said, and we were reported. All my acquaintances watched my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. In verse 9, the first two lines of it, Jeremiah is all, I quit. I quit my job as a messenger of God. But what's his response in the next set of lines in verse 9? But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I tried to quit, but I couldn't. Jeremiah would say this. I can't go on doing this, but I can't stop either. I can't take it anymore, but I can't not do it. The price of not following God's call is even greater than the price of following God's call. And look at I love just to tear apart every word of it. Why couldn't he do it? Well, first of all, he couldn't do it because he dealt with God's word. If this is God's word, then it's God's word. And, and I couldn't quit because that word lives in my heart. That's where it is. His word was in my heart. Not just in my head, but in my heart. Then that word burns in my heart like fire. 
And that word, burning in my heart, it presses against my very being. It's as if it is shut up in my bones, and it requires more energy to hold it in. Notice the phrase, I was weary of holding it back. It takes more energy to hold God's word in and not proclaim it than it does to, to pay the price of proclaiming it. I got to quit, but I can't. I know God has called me to this. Isn't that amazing? Now, let me say something that's very clear, and I, I'm sure my brother, Pastor Tripp, would agree with me on this. I'm not trying to say that God's call on your life is for you to remain the same place doing the same thing throughout your whole life. Well, for some people, that certainly is their calling. I've told you about my friend Lance Ralston, with whom I started Calvary Chapel of Oxnard when I was 19 years old in the fall of 1982. We started. Many of you were not even born yet, the fall of 1982. And uh, we started Calvary Chapel of Oxnard together. Okay, Lance Ralston is still faithfully, wonderfully pastoring that congregation now more than 35 years later. It's an amazing thing. God has had Lance Ralston stay there, and he has a glorious ministry there. Really. I mean, that church is thriving. It's healthy. He's a wonderful pastor, and those are well-cared-for sheep. Me, on the other hand, I haven't been able to hold down a job anywhere since. I've moved from church to church. Well, look, not that. I mean, my, my story of my ministry is kind of weird. God has done everything in either sevens or multiples of sevens. It's really weird. I was at Calvary Chapel Oxnard for seven years. I was at Calvary Chapel Simi Valley for 14 years. I was in Germany for seven years to the day. I was a senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara for seven years to the day. And... Check back with me in five and a half years and see what God's doing with me. <laughs> it's going to be weird. Now, let me tell you something. Even though I've pastored three different churches and a Bible college, and I don't know exactly what it is that I do now, but my calling hasn't changed at all. I'm teaching, I'm preaching, I'm pouring into God's people, and I'm pouring into other pastors and leaders. So I'm not trying to say that the field of your ministry is going to stay the same your whole life. God may move you to a different place, different people, all that. But what I'm just trying to say is the calling, like in my life, has stayed the same. Sometimes it's very difficult doing it. But I can't not do it because it burns within me. Even though, I love what he says there in verse 10, I could not. Even though it cost him a lot of pain and humiliation, Jeremiah could not not preach. I know that's a double negative, but you get what I mean. He had to preach it, and he had to preach it faithfully. It wasn't only that Jeremiah was compelled to preach. There were lots of preachers in his day. But what Jeremiah was compelled to do was compelled to preach faithfully, even despite the cost. Even though, look at verse 10, for I heard many 
mocking. They mocked Jeremiah's message of coming catastrophe. They hoped that he would stumble. They wanted to take revenge on him. They cried out both to his face and behind his back, fear on every side. Oh, we're so scared because of Jeremiah's message. We're really afraid. And that's why he says, and man, this is like the soaring stuff. You ready to soar with Jeremiah? Okay, I love it. He preaches. He's punched. He's put in the stocks. He gets out of them. And at least in the movie that I'm making of this, with tears in his eyes, he, he's bringing the word to Pashur again. He, he's just proclaiming it as bold as he can. I, I imagine, again, if I'm making a movie of this, uh, Pashur is so in shock at what Jeremiah said to him. Like, I can't believe this guy that just spent the night in the stocks. I can't believe that he's saying this to me. He's just stunned. And after Jeremiah says his tear filled words to Pasher, Jeremiah just walks away. And he walks away. Maybe, maybe he walked out the east gate of the temple. Maybe he walked across the Kidron Valley. Maybe he went over to an olive garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know. If I'm making the movie, that's how I make it. <laughs> and he cries out to God. You tricked me. Why have you done this to me? But there's something amazing when a man or a woman is honest before God. I'll tell you a message that I think is very important for us today. And I say it a lot. I don't mind saying it a lot. It's kind of something that God's put on my heart to communicate to people. It's absolutely essential for us today to bring the real you to the real Jesus. Now, it's got to be the real Jesus, not the phony Jesus, not the flower power Jesus, not the, you know, political hero Jesus. You know, I mean, the real Jesus of the Bible. So it's got to be the real Jesus. But you know what else is? It's got to be the real you. Not the church face you. Not the phony baloney you. Not the, you know, double life you. And you, you're living a double life and you bring the better of the two lives to Jesus. But the real you, the worse half of the double life, you don't even bring that one to Jesus. Listen, I, I don't know if you can be saved if you bring a fake you to the real Jesus. It's got to be you, who you really are. Not, not the image you just put out at church. And for those of us who serve the Lord, this has relevance for us as well. You can be real before God. When it stinks and you feel it and you feel like God has tricked you, you can cry out to him. When you say, God, why have you made me a disgrace? Why, why, why is this? You can pour it out before God. He can take it. Matter of fact, it honors him. Because let me clue you in on something. He knows it anyway about you. But he wants you to be real with him about it. But when you do that, something amazing happens. Look, I'm just going to start reading you these words. And you'll, you'll see. I mean, it's not, 
It doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure this one out. Look at the amazing thing that happens. Verse 11. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I pleaded my cause before you. Do do you see him developing strength here? It's like, no, Lord. I poured out my heart to you, and you didn't reject me. I poured out my heart to you, and you drew me closer. This mighty, awesome one, the Lord that I serve, you're for me. You're on my side. If God be for me, who can be against me? I love that line, verse 11. The Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. And let me tell you, those words are spoken more in faith than in experience. Because when Jeremiah was up on the stocks, up on the Temple Mount, he didn't feel probably that the Lord was with him as a mighty, awesome one. But he's saying it. He's proclaiming it. Lord, your might and your awe are a greater fact than my pain, than my humiliation, than the rejection I felt, than the beatings I've experienced. God, you are becoming greater in my eyes, and my misery is getting smaller. I mean, this is just beautiful. And then look at the boldness. Don't you see it there in verse 11? It's like a little bit of swagger now. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not. You, you pastures, you guys are marked men. I know it seems like you have the upper hand today, but it's not going to last. God, God is going to do it. And you, O oh Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart. I love he says it there in verse 12. Let me see your vengeance upon them. Which, by the way, is the right way to pray. I mean, sometimes we shy away from, what's the technical term for this? Imprecatory prayers. Imprecatory means God get them prayers. But listen, a God get them prayer is a thousand times better than a I'm going to get you. If you feel some brother or sister has done you wrong or some pagan has done you wrong, it's way better for you to pray God get them than it is for you to try to get them yourself. Jeremiah just leaves it in the hands of the Lord. We just see him. Building and strength until it comes to a crescendo at verse 13. Look at verse 13. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of evildoers. Right, stop. No more. Don't look at verse 14. Eyes on me right here. Come on. Give the preacher a little break here. I mean, you see in verse 13 this crescendo of praise. I mean, doesn't this seem like a 180 from the humiliation of the stocks? Jeremiah was honest with God. Lord, you tricked me. I can't do this anymore. And he goes, but I have to do it. I can't quit. I can't keep doing this, but I can't quit either. Very much the same kind of spirit as Peter would later say. What does he say? He says, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. I got to do this, Lord. And I, I'm happy to do it. And as you pour out your heart to God, you see yourself building in strength. You go from built-up strength, assurance in the Lord, to verse 13, the high point of praise. It's just beautiful. And I don't know about you, but I've seen God do this in my life again and again. How often has it been that when I think about my problems, I get all depressed, 
when I pray about my problems and really lay them before the Lord, I'm just exhilarated. I know, God, you're going to handle this. And again and again, this happens. Now, if our text ended at verse 13, we'd be just like, yes, praise the Lord. This is so amazing. I want you to know, I am super grateful that it doesn't end at verse 13. Because look at verse 14. Cursed be the day in which I was born. <laughs> Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying, A male child has been born to you, making him very glad. And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon, because he did not kill me from the womb. That my mother might have been my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame? You know, I love how verse 14 and following. Isn't this just brutally real? Look, let's face it. There is, in life and in ministry, there is a, a series of ups and downs. There is. And you are never going to come to some place of victory that's so glorious and so mountaintop-ish that you're not going to face this again. I mean, I just love the contrast between 13 and 14. Yes, praise the Lord. Cursed be the day on which I was born. <laughs> I mean, it's so real, and it is. It is. Now, it's not like we walk around all glum and depressed. Oh, I'm just waiting for the next attack to come because I know it's going to come. No way. I mean, we're just rejoicing in the Lord along the way. But when the attack comes, we're not freaked out about it. We realize that we're going to have our verse 13 seasons, and we're going to have our verse 14 seasons. It's okay. God is going to be real through it all. And I'll tell you why. Because fundamentally, God has a call on your life. Uh, let me try to sound smart in front of you. Even though a guy told me this, I didn't find it out myself. There's a German philosopher, Martin Heidegger. Heidegger had this idea of, and again, I'm just trying to sound smart. You understand this? He, he had the idea, he used the German word, Geworfenheit. Geworfenheit is a made-up German word. It's not actually a word, it's a word he coined. But what Geworfenheit means is thrownness. Thrownness. And what Heidegger, this pessimistic philosopher, said is we are just thrown into the world. You are thrown into the world like dice are thrown onto the ground or onto the table. No rhyme, no reason. You just throw them and they end up whenever. You are thrown into the world. Let me tell you something. That's not the message of God. You know what? You are not thrown into the world. You are sent into the world. Matter of fact, Jesus specifically says this. I send them. I send you, Jesus says to his disciples. You and I, all of us, we are sent into the world with a plan, with a purpose, with a calling. And if you have no idea why God has sent you into the world of your calling and your purpose, then you get to seek in him about it. I got a feeling that most of you got a pretty good inkling and you're trying to follow it out the best you can. 
But, but no, when we know that we are sent into the world, not just tossed, like that pessimistic philosopher said, not just thrown into this world. No, we're sent. Man, it makes all the difference. That's why Jeremiah was so off track. He thought it would be better if he were never born. Is that not what he's saying there? Is that, is that an okay analysis of that? It'd be better if I was never born. You know what he didn't consider? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, here's your problem. You're not going back far enough. You thought it would be sweet if you were never born? My calling was on your life before you were born, before you were ever formed. And is that unique to Jeremiah? I don't think so. God has this glorious plan in your life. It's running your race. We talked about that before. God has your race. You are not called to run my race. I'm not called to run your race. But God's given you your calling, your purpose, the reason for which Jesus has sent you. You're just called to live that out. And I'll tell you something. It'll be a struggle until the very end. God has a promise for us that everything is going to be easy. Everything's going to be wonderful. The battle will be over. It'll be nothing but nonstop victory all the time. I'm not fooling around. That is God's promise for each and every one of us. We call it heaven. On this side of eternity, it's going to be a struggle until the end. But let me tell you something. Jeremiah says it's going to be a glorious struggle. A glorious struggle to the very end. And then will come that day when the struggle's over and we're received into the many mansions our Father has for all of us. But until then, we're okay with the ups and downs. We're honest with God. And we realize because we are sent into the world for a purpose. I can't keep doing this, Lord. But the greater truth is, I can't stop it either. I got to do what you called me to do. Father, I pray that every single person in this room would receive from you a greater sense of their calling, a greater sense of the purpose and the wisdom you have in sending them. And Lord, I, I, I know, Lord, we do not have to have it all figured out. We just need enough for us to act on in the present. But Lord, thank you. Thank you for not throwing us into this world, but sending us. And thank you for uh, lifting us up high, even though there's going to be times when it feels like we crash down again, that every time, Lord, you're faithful to lift us up. So do it, Lord. Thank you for your kindness to us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.